Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 317 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. We're glad you're here. Uh, I'm here with uh, co-host Sarah Archer today. Uh, co-host uh, Hannah LaRue is still on maternity leave, but she'll be back with us in the new year, we hope. Uh, uh, Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are y'all doing? Doing great. And also in Hannah's place today, we're pleased to be joined by Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club. Dave, how are you today? Very well this morning. Thank you, Lindis. Yeah, and I see behind you, you got a bunch of books in your shelves there. You've read all those books? Uh, I can't claim to have read every single one, but probably <laughs> parts of almost all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, you you probably, given your background as a college professor for many years, uh, you, you, you've got uh, one of these problems, uh, these addictions of collecting books, right? Yeah, I'm afraid it's it, it's a very bad and expensive habit, but it keeps <laughs> me off the streets. A- there's a term for that right i think it's called like sendoku or something um like collecting books (laughs) there's an actual word for it yeah well it's always bibliomaniac yeah that's a good one uh, well um dave you're gonna be riding along with us today so we're glad to have you but uh let's tell our listeners uh what we've got planned for today sarah yeah, so we've got a really exciting author feature today with New York Times bestselling author David Baldacci. Um, we're going to discuss three books that he released this year, Dreamtown, The 620 Man, and Long Shadows, which is a memory man mystery. Um, they're all very different, but very engaging. And we're also going to have a reading by David from Memory Man. Yeah, enjoyed that interview. A lot of fun. And that guy's really prolific. Uh, we'll talk about how he writes and releases three novels in a year. Uh, we're also going to be having a uh, uh, another tip from Charlotte Litt, uh, this one by Paul Reale, Visualizing and Keeping Writing Goals. It's a follow-up to his uh, condemnation of New Year's resolutions. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in that one. And we've also going to have um, a discussion about a community blog post by author Jonathan Lerner called Writing Believably About Places You've Never Been. Yeah, we're going to finish up today with another thriller, Outside the Wire, by local author Gary Edgington. Uh one reviewer had this to say about the book, The Life or Death Stakes of War are Raw and Riveting. Gary really knows how to write fully developed and multi-layered characters, male and female, while still writing an action-filled, suspenseful novel, a rare combination. I was drawn into the relationships as much as I was by the story. So lots of good stuff uh, on tap today. Uh, but before we jump into that, let's uh, 
check in with what's in the host world. Uh, we're, we're recording ahead here in early November, but when this releases, it will be November 29th. So try to project ahead, Sarah. What's going to be happening? Um, so let's see. I guess in early December, I'm going to be busy with a lot of sort of holiday and family events coming up. Um, I'm going out of town to St. Martin halfway through December, so I'm looking forward to that. And um, looking ahead to the new year after that, I've got in January, I believe it's January 18th, I'll be speaking to a group called Writers Beyond Borders, which is hosted by the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library System. Um, it's a Zoom group that meets once a month. So you can register and join from anywhere. You can look that up on the um, Charlotte Library System website. And I'm also going to be teaching a three-night screenwriting course in February for Charlotte Lit. So that's up on their website as well. That's great. Uh, and uh, Dave, what's up in your world as of November 29th? <laughs> what's up in my world is the being president of the Charlotte Writers Club is a time <laughs> job, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, we had a great meeting uh, last month with uh, none other than Landis, Host, uh, Landis Wade as, as our speaker. And in December, when we uh, meet uh, on December 13th, we'll be organizing new critique groups. And if, if you're uh, an aspiring writer looking to uh, find other people to help you along, I'd urge you to come to that meeting at the Tybola Senior Center on December 13th, 6.30, find yourself a group of writers to work with, and they'll keep moving you forward. Yeah, we got to get them to rename that center to get some uh, young writers to come out and join <laughs> us, right? <laughs> you don't have to be a senior to attend. <laughs> Maybe we'll give a junior discount or something. They're always giving senior discounts. Maybe we'll give a junior discount if they come to the senior center for the writers' club. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And uh, we'll, we'll be talking more with Dave today about uh, Charlotte Writers Club and what's going on there. Um, I guess in my world, November 29th, I'm going to be uh, teaching uh, that night uh, a uh, class at Charlotte Lit on uh, both sides of the mic, uh, how to nail the author interview. So that'll be fun if you've thought about uh, or haven't thought about, uh, you know, how best to present yourself uh, in an interview format. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the things you can do in that regard. Uh, also, I hope to have by then um, the... Uh, the new covers for the Christmas book series. It's been about seven years. We're working on that. We're going to come out with a little fresher take on uh, on those books. Uh, you know, when you're putting together your your covers for your first books, um, you know, you don't know a lot. And so one of the things I learned is, you know, you kind of find what the genre is and nail that down and then get somebody that does a lot of work in that area. So it's going to be a lot of fun to put that together and, and get that out there. So... Uh, and then, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, bringing uh, a couple more co-hosts on here in uh, December. Uh, Kathy Collins and uh, Paul Rialli from Charlotte Litt are going to ride shotgun with us in December. And we'll probably have an end-of-the-year episode we're putting together that uh, we'll do some recapping. So a lot of fun. Um, looking forward to that. Uh, before we jump into the first act today, a little message here. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, we're in Act One, and we've got an author feature here. Um, really enjoyed uh, the, my interview with David Baldacci. He is uh, uh, prolific, to say the least. Uh, we had him on the podcast a couple years ago, um, and this time, this year, he wrote uh, three books. I, I read them three different ways. I read uh, Dreamtown uh, on, uh, I think it was audiobook, 620 Man on ebook and Long Shadows and, uh, and Hardback. 
Uh, Long Shadows is an Amos Decker memory man mystery. That's about seven or eight books in that series. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about David's bio. Yeah, um, so David needs no introduction. He's a wonderful author and speaker, global uh, number one bestselling author. And um, his books have been published in over 45 languages in more than 80 countries with 150 million copies sold worldwide. They've been adapted for both feature film and television. Um, he has also co-founded a foundation called Wish You Well, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting literacy efforts across America. Um, he still lives in his native Virginia, and you can visit him at davidbaldotti.com and learn more about his books and his foundation. Yeah, we're going to be talking about, um, as I said, all three of these books. Uh, Dreamtown is sort of a 1950s throwback noir. The 620 Man is sort of a fast-paced thriller um, with a former uh, military man uh, who's trying to uncover a mystery in the big city. And then uh, The Memory Man is more of a traditional mystery where there's a lot of uh, uh, red herrings and trying to figure out you know, who done it with several murders that took place. Uh, and this particular character, Amos Decker, he's got a perfect memory uh, which is due to the fact that he uh, suffered a serious injury, head injury, uh, and instead of uh, going in one direction, it went in the other. And it's not as, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, there are problems with that too because he can't forget anything. And so that's kind of a burden uh, as as well as a, as a help to his investigation process. So uh, great stuff. I enjoyed reading all three books and uh, thought what we do is we'll just play the interview and then we'll come back and uh, jump into our book recommendations after that. So here we go with uh, David Baldacci. Uh, David, welcome back to uh, Charlotte Ridge Podcast. Great. It's great to be back. Thank you. Yeah. Now, last time um, on the podcast, it was back in April of 2021, I think. The book we discussed was Gambling Man. Uh, it's, uh, it's a Lucius Archer thriller. And so when the sequel came out this uh, year, I read uh, Dreamtown. I also just read The 620 Man. I just read uh, The Memory Man Thriller, Long Shadows. So uh, I know we're here to talk about The Memory Man Thriller today, but uh, since I read all those three books, I've got a couple of questions about that, all right? So we got uh, Dreamtown. You got a protagonist who is a private eye in the 1950s, more of a throwback noir. You got 620 Man. He's a former military guy who finds himself on Wall Street in a fast-paced thriller. And then Long Shadows, and we got Amos Decker back, who after being injured, he has a perfect memory kind of a blessing and a curse, but he's attached to the FBI and it's more cerebral in terms of solving this murder. So I guess the question is, given those different types of books, uh, can you talk about the challenges of writing three different types of books and doing so regularly, uh, and in this case in one year, and then also kind of a part of that question, how do you keep the voices straight in your head of these different characters? Yeah, that, that, that really good questions. Um, this was, you know, a unique year. I Usually I have two books a year, um, the 620 man was kind of a surprise. I had an idea for the book and wrote it really quickly and had finished it before I even talked to my editor or my agent or my publisher about it. And they were thrilled obviously to have another book. Um, I really, I compartmentalize well. So when I was writing the Aloysius Archer novel, Dreamtown, I, um, I was immersed in that world. I was 1953 and that's where I was and I wasn't thinking about anything else. And there was no Amos Decker in existence for me. There was no 620 man in New York for me at that point in time. But each of the characters are very different. I mean, Archer and then Travis Devine in the 620 man and Amos Decker in Long Shadows, they're really unique. I mean, I, I'm, I'm their mother. I, I birthed all three of them, you know, <laughs> so I know everything there is to know about each of them. So I never had trouble sort of differentiating between the three. But at the same time, um, you have to allow some space in between. 
And um, I wasn't, you know, writing them simultaneously. Obviously, I needed to have some separation so that I could make sure that I was fully immersed in each world at the time that I was writing it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Well, also, um, related question, I consume these three books in different ways. I, I listened to Dreamtown on audiobook through Leroy.fm. I read The 620 Man on my ebook because I was traveling <laughs> on my Kindle. And then uh, when your publicist sent me Long Shadows, uh, I just read that hardback over the weekend. And I'm curious, do you have a sense of where most of your readers find you? And uh, can you talk about the importance of having your books available on different platforms? Yeah, I could. I, I can tell you the percentage breakdown. Probably the physical books represent probably 40%. Uh, the e-books probably represent about 40%. And the Audible uh, have now risen dramatically to about 20% of the total. So people are definitely, and I, I think that some people like you kind of flit amongst all three. You know, it's not like one's audio only, one's Kindle only. Uh, they jump around depending on their circumstances and where they happen to be at that moment in time. Um, I, you know, I like the, I read, obviously, I like physical books. I read physical books, but I've gotten more into audio lately. Uh, I like the performance quality of it, where you have mm -hmm. actors sort of acting out these roles. And I've listened to all my books on audio as well. And it's a different experience for me. And I find myself, you know, sitting in the garage with the car running, <laughs> uh, even though I know how it's going to end. I know you're driving around the block. I, I listened to some of my earlier books. And I, I say this. Uh, I wonder what's going to happen here. You know, so, <laughs> it's been a while since since you wrote them. And that's the other thing. Uh, you know, when you do interviews like this, and some, and you do three books in one year, uh, how do you keep it all straight? I mean, you got plots, you got characters, you got uh, different things that are going on, and and really different types of books. So, uh, I really, I what I try to do is compartmentalize really well, and I, I immerse myself in each of those different worlds. So when I was writing. Long Shadows, that was my total complete focus uh, aside from everything else. And that allowed me to sort of have some space and a buffer uh, with everything else. And again, they're so, they were so intensely different books. I didn't have any trouble sort of, you know, there was never any crossing the streams, as they say in, in Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. I never crossed mm -hmm. the streams. So <laughs> it, was a little, it was a little bit easier than maybe it might have looked. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, last time we talked on the podcast, I dug, I'm not going to do it again here, but we dug deeper into lawyer becoming novelist because um, I, I was a lawyer too before I started podcasting. But one of the things that came out of that when I listened again was uh, you talked about the difference between writing, you know, what you have to write when you're a lawyer and then writing fiction. And I think you said you write the books you want to write. And that seems like very good advice to me for writers in general. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, has that approach helped you be as prolific as you are that is writing what you love and is that the kind of advice you give to other writers i do I, I you know i tell them you you have to have a full creative tank throughout the entire gauntlet of writing a novel if your tank slips to empty or even half full you're going to lose energy and interest and focus and you don't want that to happen and people do that oftentimes because they're tracing they're chasing a trend you know a code book comes out and it's popular. So everybody's writing code books, dinosaur, you know, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, everybody's <laughs> writing dinosaurs and you may not care about it. And you're just writing it because you think you might get a movie deal. And before you know it, you run out of steam, run out of energy, run out of ideas because you don't really care about it. So you better make sure your passion for the subject matter is really, really high because you're going to need that. Otherwise you're going to run out of steam. So I write about things that interest me. I write about characters that I want to explore more thoroughly and I never run out of creative fuel because of that. So I pick my subjects really carefully. 
Do you ever, related question, do you ever find yourself sometimes writing with uh, maybe a movie in mind uh, because they're different mediums? Yeah, I never do that because the odds are so long against it happening. So if, you, if you're <laughs> writing a, a novel hoping it's going to be turned into a movie, what you're really doing is writing a screenplay in disguise. Yeah. It's going to be a really yeah. crappy book. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good point. But, you know, for audiobook, too, I mean, you listen to your own audiobooks, and I find that sometimes the tags aren't as necessary if you have a good actor for your audiobook when it comes to dialogue. Absolutely right. You don't need nearly as many attribution lines as you otherwise need. And um, I've found with, with, lately with our audiobooks, we always have at least two readers, uh, male and female. And for the 620 Man, we had three, which I think worked. Uh, the 620 Man audio is one of the best they've ever done in mine. I really, I've listened to that twice just because it was so entertaining. Um, so it's it's really important, and that's quite a skill. I mean, people ask me, do you read your own books? And I said, look, I know my strengths, and I certainly know my weaknesses, and that's one of them. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm going to get to the Merry Man just a second, but on the 620 Man, uh, this guy's riding the 620 train every day into, into the city. Uh, is that uh, something that... Uh, You've done it at some point in time. I mean, because there's a there's a little plot point. I don't want to give anything away, but there's an organic signaling system that happens along the. I'm just wondering if that came to you as you're riding a train or something. Yeah, I I was definitely in the D.C. area. I was a commuter um, into D.C. and I was I've ridden the subway in New York as well. You know, out to Westchester and back into Manhattan. Um, and but I love trains. But I love sort of the romanticism of trains where you're you can be a voyeur onto the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite films of all time is Rear Window. And I've always envisioned Rear Window being actually in a train. When Jimmy Stewart's looking out the window, it could be the window of a train. And he's peering into the into the lives of all these other people. Um, so the 620 train, 620 man was me for me to sort of, you know, tip of the hat, a little homage to a rear window. Um, and what happens if you lift your eyes from your iPhone for five seconds of your life and look out the window and actually see something of interest? Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned uh, in, in the initial question how uh, the 620 Man it, you know, is more of a thriller. It moves quickly, and there is some thrilling parts to Memory Man, but also because of his background with the perfect memory and the things that come with that, you're doing more sort of analysis and figuring things out and dropping hints. And, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, that comes, I think Memory Man comes more from the traditional mysteries almost, and the, the other comes from more traditional thrillers. Am I right about that? Yeah, you are. I mean, uh, Long Shadows is more a traditional police procedural. You know, he's got a crime right. scene. They've got to interpret it. They have clues. They have suspects. They have people they have to interview. They have to run around collecting theories um, and trying to find more evidence that can help them point them in the right direction. So that is more of a straightforward police procedural that, you know, people have read, you know, in the past. 620 Man is definitely adrenaline there's not as much investigation because he's not a cop he's just a guy out there trying to find the truth so it's almost a little bit like you know the the book you know six days of the condor the movie three days of the condor you got this mm -hmm. guy you know a fish out of water he's just an every guy and he's trying and he's in a bad situation he's trying to survive uh, which i've always loved stories like that and Dreamtown's a throwback, right? Dreamtown is a throwback, yes. I mean, <laughs> L.A. in the 50s, the golden age of Hollywood, um, when so much was going on, uh, much of it illegal. I mean, how could you not love that? <laughs> and, uh, well, also a little bit of a throwback because in Memory Man, you take us to the Fountain Blue. And uh, actually, we had a lawyer retreat there when I was still practicing law. And, uh, you know, that's the place where the Rat Pack hung out. And it was just a uh, iconic place. And I thought, I'm sure you've been there, right? Yes. And it, it, it very iconic. And they, they, re, they redid it about 15 years yeah. ago, but 
put a lot of money into it. But yeah, that was one of those places, you know, that people you went to be seen and to see and be seen. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that was like, you know, the Copacabana and in uh, and, and Vegas on the Strip. And um, that was just a place if you were even a minor celebrity, that was a place that, you know, you could be seen there and be written up about in the gossip columns. And that was a good thing for your career. So I love stuff like that, you know, the history. And I love the fact that, you know, the title comes from, you know, old sins cast long shadows. Mm. And that definitely. Yeah, well, the, the great staircase that comes down the fountain blue in the, in the foyer there, but we lawyers, we weren't there to be seen. We were talking billable hours and projections and stuff and all that kind of crazy stuff, you know, I'm sure. But uh, All right. Let's, <laughs> let's talk memory man for a minute. The latest is long shadows. Uh, this is the seventh book in the Amos Decker Memory Man series. Uh, you gave us a bit of a curve early in the book, uh, at least for me anyway, probably for other readers. When you, uh, when he gets this book from the uh, this letter from the Cognitive Institute of Chicago, letting him know the situation with his brain uh, is more fluid and there could be changes uh, in his brain going forward. Uh, and you seem to be kind of letting us know that maybe there's going to be an endpoint for this character. However. Also saw a hint in there that uh, he's maybe come to terms with the fact that he may have to solve crimes like regular people at some point. So I can't tell exactly what you've got in mind here, David. What's going to happen, man? <laughs> I know. He, I think this book energized me and also energized Decker because in the in the beginning, yeah, obviously it was a very traumatic experience. What happened in the early parts of the book that really rocked him, and he's a, he approached this case with not the same drive not the same eagerness and not even sure he wanted to do this anymore. And Freddie, you know, his new partner, Freddie, you know, they're butted heads from the very beginning. And I think, but she was the right person at the right time for him uh, to get him back on track and make him understand he needed to bring his A game on this. And if this is not something he wanted to do, then he needed to get out of the game and not play it anymore. But knowing Decker, what else would he have at this point? Mm -hmm. This is who he is. Mm -hmm. And, it's like anything else. When you have a traumatizing event, you know, you need some time. You need some time to deal with it, process it, and get through it. And he really didn't have that opportunity. Um, but he got himself together. He got his A game back on, and he moved forward. So will there be some more Amos Decker in the future? There will be more Amos Decker in the future. I really like the chemistry between he and Freddie. I think it really clicks, and I can see, you know, a lot of adventures for them moving forward. Okay, well, great. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit more before we finish up, but you've got a little reading I think you're going to do from uh, yes. from the book. And uh, if there's if it's not the very first page or something, you can set it up a little bit before you read it. I will. So um, this is after White and Decker have met. Uh, they've been assigned to investigate this uh, double homicide in South Florida. And they're on uh, the plane going down uh, to Florida now. And just to give you a background from a couple of the lines I'm going to read from, um, Freddie White is African-American woman. Um, Decker is 6'5", 300 pounds. Freddie is 5'3", about 105 pounds, uh, but punches above her weight. So this is them on the plane. After the jet lifted into the air, White said, you read the email they sent about what happened in Florida? Decker nodded. What do you think? I don't think anything. Somebody else's version of the facts in an email doesn't mean anything to me. I need to see it for myself. Well, what I got from it was this was an inside job or at least the killer knew things he shouldn't have. You're making assumptions that aren't justified yet. Like what? She asked. There was only one killer, and then it was male. I was just speaking generally. I like specifics much better. So explain why you think that, he said. The person or persons knew the judge's routine, no forced entry, 
where personal security was killed without him fighting back. That tells me they didn't perceive what was going on as a threat. The judge was killed and there was no sign of a struggle. She didn't try to call for help. So she might have known whoever it was who killed her, the guard too. But why let someone in if they just killed your protection, White asked. She either didn't know that it happened or something even more devious was going on. She's divorced, ex lives in the area. Right, so the ex puppy's a possible suspect. Spouses and particularly exes always are. Don't I know it, replied White. The plane started shutting altitude an hour and a half later and they landed at the Southwest Florida International Airport near Fort Myers. A rental car was waiting for them. White drove while Decker wedged himself into the passenger seat of the mid-sized four-door. White glanced over at him as they pulled into traffic. Sorry, it's all they had. Shortage of rental cars these days. I've never ridden in one that was remotely comfortable, so my expectations are non-existent. Agent from the local RA is on the scene, she said, referring to an FBI resident agency. I know. The body bodies are still there, too. They're apparently holding them for us. He glanced at her. Are you trying to screw with me? No, I'm trying to be informative. Don't. Alex said you could get testy. You haven't even seen mildly annoyed, much less the other side of the Rubicon. Thanks for the information, she replied. I'd like to know where I stand. He recited from memory, as a person of color and a woman on top of that, I find it necessary to my future well-being and that of my family. Alex also said your memory could be frustrating at times, but she worked around it. Decker looked out the window at the bright sky and said, I never liked Florida. When I played ball at Ohio State, we would come down to play Florida and Florida State and Miami. Hated every second of it. And not only because their player was so much faster and athletic than we were. Why? Too much heat or too many old people or both? No, because I'm just a lunch pail guy from the Midwest. Meaning? I hate sand. <laughs> yeah, and that came into play a couple of times in the book. Well, a couple of writing life questions here uh, before we finish up. So um, I'm thinking about these three different books. I'm thinking about uh, plotting. Um, this book is a double homicide. question comes up is whether there's one killer, two killers. Um, and you have a lot of twists and turns here and a lot of things. I'm not going to give anything away, obviously, but, uh, it just, it occurs to me that maybe there's a little more work that goes into plotting a book like this than plotting a book like 620 man. And um, I'm just curious about your process, uh, for both. Yeah, it is. Um, the setup on, on uh, long shadows had to be really intricate and really perfect without seeming to be. Uh, so, the way I set it up, they walked into a crime scene in a house, one body shot in a study, uh, one body knifed in an upstairs bedroom. They both died almost at the same time. So the TOD, time of death, was about the same. Different methods of killing went in the same house. So people, not only will the police and the FBI make assumptions based on that scenario, forensic parameters, readers will too. Okay, I got that. Two dead bodies, somebody killed them. They have to find out who it is. So I set that all in the play, and from that I had five or six different subplots that bleed off of that automatically. So I had enough really to write the entire book just from that one scene. And then about three-quarters of the way through, I blew up all the assumptions that people had made from the very early part of the, of the book. <laughs> I saw that. I happened to notice that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was that had to be sort of very intricately planned. Now, you know, with the 620 man, there were some police procedural elements to it. It's just that the main guy was not a detective he was just a citizen trying to figure stuff out so he wasn't going to get so much into forensics but at the same time you know you had a crime scene where the woman was found hanging in an office building you had a time window where death took place so you know you had to go check suspects and alibis and all the other stuff but the way i set that up 
you know, a little bit in a parallel with Long Shadows that I made you think that the crime happened a certain way and that the killer was the killer in a certain context. And the person that sent the cryptic email, you know, that all had to follow sort of a preordained trail. And as a reader, you kind of take that and you put it into a box and say, okay, I've got that figured out. I understand how that pieces together. And later on in the book, I sort of blow that out of the water too. Uh, I take you down another path. So it's, it's a different setup, but you're trying to achieve some of the same things and that you're trying to make, take the readers out of their comfort zone. You're telling them in the first hand, yeah, this looks straightforward, ordinary. You've probably read this a million times, seen it in a bunch of movies. So feel comfortable with how to set it up and put that into a neatly labeled box. And then at some point, I'm just going to blow you and that assumption right out of the water and knock you right back on your ass. Yeah, if you get stuck, just kill somebody, right? And then you can uh, open open it back up again. <laughs> right. uh, so do you, do you just uh, do you kind of plot things out on a on a pad every now? I mean, you not do a full blown outline, but you kind of plot things, right? A little every now and then. Yeah, I let them. I get, let it grow organically, and I get to a certain point, and I I look at what I have, and I look at what the possibilities are based on what I've already written, and I go through different scenarios, and until I come upon the one that makes the most sense for me. Uh, keeping in mind that, you know, I'm not saying it's three-dimensional chess, but it's a lot more than just checkers, too. So when you decide on a particular pathway forward, you have to understand that you do it for more than one reason. You have to have a couple or three reasons why you're selecting that path, because you're going to have subplots branch off from that as well. And they all have to, at some point, dovetail and make sense. All right. Uh, I got a question about uh, editing and length of books, and don't take this the wrong way. It's, uh, you know, you got 430-some uh, pages, and... Uh, in Memory Man, the other books are different links. Um, and it's kind of a two-part question. Uh, d does your editor's job become harder to give you feedback as you write more books? Or does your editor still challenge you uh, about what to put in and what to leave out? And sort of a second part of that is, do you self-edit as much now as you did earlier in your career? Yeah. The answer to the first question, my editor still challenges me, which is, is why he's still my editor. If he weren't, then he wouldn't. If he weren't doing that, then he would not be my editor. We've had a great relationship over like 25 books. Um, and I need him to push me because uh, he, he's the reason it gets me to the, to think at the next level and the next level and the next level and to keep going deeper. And the self-editing continues to this day. I mean, not every word that I write is going to be set in stone. Um, some days I'm better than other days. And some days require more editing when I go back and look what I've written. And sometimes I just delete it all, you know, and mm. start again. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. I, I, just because I've written all these books doesn't mean that I'm ever going to master this craft of writing. I still make mistakes. I go down the wrong path sometimes. I make a, a U-turn, and uh, you just work through it. Yeah, that's that's good. And, and in terms of the uh, the research side, and you, as I recall, you weren't a criminal defense attorney, so you've had to learn some of this police procedural stuff and what happens in a criminal courtroom over time. Is it still a learning experience for you? Oh, absolutely, it is. It's um, but it's a fascinating one too. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was I was a litigator um, in, in civil court, um, you know, you brought in on a, on a hand truck all your boxes and all that. Now it's all on the computer. I still remember, you know, um, making sure the cases were good case law by doing all the shepherdizing by hand. And now who does that anymore? Right. And uh, law library <laughs> for now on a, on a cloud. <laughs> yeah. But, people listening probably don't know it. Shepherds is unless you're a lawyer, but it's the way that you site check uh, when you're writing a brief. And and I had a fun story when I was coming along. I I grew up when the shepherds were in hardback. You know, you'd have to go to the library and pull them off the shelf. And 
one year I went to the library and I complained that, you know, the shepherds were gone. She said, uh, there's this thing called the computer now, Landis, you know, <laughs> that you're supposed to use. <laughs> so that does change. Uh, well, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, a little bit about reading and uh, literacy, uh, it's another kind of two-part question, but um, you, you've got this uh, organization that uh, focuses on illiteracy uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, you're an advocate for family literacy. And I just want to see if you could give us an update on what's going on there and also maybe talk about the importance of reading as a writer. I'm curious about how much you read a year and how that figures into your writing. Yes, the Wish You Well Foundation, we've been really active during the course of the pandemic because a lot of the funding for some of these organizations dried up with the pandemic. Uh, so we actually have given out more money uh, than normal over the course of the pandemic. We're just funding a literacy uh, center in rural Virginia where people can come of all ages, can come in and learn how to read at a higher level, have access to a lot of books, learn important job skills, to sort of turn their life in that community around, which is something we want to make an impact on people's lives and their communities. So that's going really well, and we're going to continue to do that. And reading for me, I continue to read all the time. I have stacks of books next to my bed. Um, one, it's, it's a pleasure. You know, I grew up reading, and it's a fundamental part of my life. And at the same time, you know, I like to see what other writers out there doing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who write thrillers and mysteries and just contemporary fiction. Um, it's nice to see how others approach their craft, how they set their stories up, how they build their characters. And again, it's a nonstop learning process. You can learn from things like that. Don't think that you know it all because I can guarantee you, you don't. Yeah, it is fast changing. By the time this episode comes out, you will have been to Charlotte to, uh, or verse and vino, um, and I'm sure it would have been a good time, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you been to Charlotte to do events before? I have been. Yeah, we had some really good friends. Uh, actually, the former CFO of my publisher, American publisher, uh, he lives in Charlotte with his wife uh, and all their three grown kids, and they have their own families. They all live in Charlotte, so we're going to visit them while we're down there. And we told them I'd gotten this invitation. They're like, oh, my God, that's a really big deal. You know, and everybody, yeah. everybody's trying to get tickets to that. And and I also I'm going to be able uh, to see my very dear friend, Adriana Trigiani, who I describe as one of my honorary Italian sisters. So uh, it'll be a lot that's of fun. Great. All right. Well, I know you're probably uh, a little exhausted from three books in one year, but uh, you always have to ask what's next for David Badalci. Yeah. So in April of next year, uh, it's another thriller called Simply Lies. It's a brand new book, brand new characters. It's a protagonist and antagonist, both women. It's a very different book than one that I've written before and covers a very different subject matter, one I really haven't taken on before. Um, the idea for it was actually came from a podcast that my wife told me to listen to and it dealt with the occupation of one of the people on the podcast. And I thought that was quite fascinating what that person did for a living. And I sort of built a story um, uh, as one of the characters having that occupation. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. All right. Well, you got to kill somebody while they're being interviewed on a podcast or something, you know, so <laughs> just don't make it Charlotte Reader's podcast. Right. <laughs> Only murderers on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I know you're, you're doing a lot of interviews, got a lot going on with uh, promoting all these books. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, David, for coming back and uh, sharing your story and your, uh, your three books this year on Charlotte Rears Podcast. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, 
you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Mears podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. So we're going to jump in now with our book recommendations. Uh, and uh, this is a time day you'll get to participate as well. We're going to start with Sarah. What you got for us this week? Yeah, so I want to recommend a book called Bronte's Mistress by Fanula Austin. Um, it's a historical fiction novel. It's based on a true story of this woman, Lydia Robinson, and the affair she had with Branwell Bronte, who was her son's tutor um, and also a younger man. <laughs> and he was the brother of the Bronte sisters, the famous authors. Um, so the book kind of chronicles how this relationship um, comes to happen and how it threatens to tear their families apart and the fallout from it. It was really meticulously researched, beautifully written. Um, it's a very complicated, interesting female protagonist. And Fanula is actually someone I know from one of my writers groups. Um, so I've been able to read part of this book when it was in draft format and um, parts of a couple of her other novels as well that she's been working on. She's a very talented writer. I always enjoy reading her work. Um, so definitely recommend this if you have any interest in historical fiction um, or, you know, the Bronte and, and their kind of uh, community of writers or just, you know, an interesting, well-drawn female lead. I think it's a great book. Mm. All right, Dave, you got some recommendations for us? Well, I think I may have just found another book to add to my stash, <laughs> Mistress, which may or may not be a good thing, uh, I, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, we build the meetings of the Charlotte Writers Club uh, around a craft talk uh, by, a, by a, a published author. And uh, at our first meeting this year, we had Kelly Mustian uh, in to, to speak to us, uh, whose first book, The Girls in the Stilt House, has made quite a splash. You know, I don't read quickly. I like to read the kind of books that make me slow down and ponder things. And Kelly Mustian delivered that to me. Uh, you know, she has those kind of mouth-filling uh, sentences that create an atmospheric sense of place or develop characters so that you begin to look into the corners where you don't normally uh, dare to peek, I guess. Um, there's another writer that I've come across in the past six or eight months, I guess, uh, who writes in a similar sort of way, Maggie O'Farrell. Um, I picked up her Hamnet probably because I taught Shakespeare uh, for 40 years and have an interest uh, in Shakespeare. But Hamnet is the book about uh, a book about the relationship between uh, William Shakespeare, um, his uh, the eclectic woman that he married, and the child that they lost uh, when he, when he was just uh, 12 or 13 years old, whose name was Hamnet, very close to Hamlet, and that happened about the time. Uh, that uh, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, as a matter of fact. Uh, but she writes that that same kind of sentence that you know, uh, rich, uh, uh, rich, eclectic, mesmerizing prose that just you know makes me want to read it out loud and enjoy the cadences. Uh, I, I would say if you haven't if you haven't picked up uh, Maggie O'Farrell's Hamlet, uh, you ought to do it forthwith, uh, post haste. All right, that's great. Uh... Appreciate those recommendations. I've got a couple that come by way of Parker Books. Um, Hallie Gomez, bookseller, <clears throat> excuse me, she recommends um, Any Other Family by New York Times bestselling author Eleanor Brown. Um, it is a, um, well, a New York Times book review editor's choice, uh, New York Times bestselling author uh, of The Weird Sisters, they say, returns with this uh, intimate new novel about three very different adoptive mothers who face the impossible question, what makes a family? 
And so the interesting thing is that they look like any of the family. They aren't quite because they are three sets of parents who find themselves intertwined after adopting, adopting four biological siblings. Um, so they're all siblings, but they're now being raised by different mothers, uh, and it sort of uh, pushes them into uncomfortable places. They try to figure out how to grapple with defining their new roles. So, so very interesting. Uh, the other comes from bookseller Hannah's The Priori of the Orange Tree, The Roots of Chaos. You can probably tell by the title that it's, that's, that's fantasy. It's uh, named the best book of the year by Amazon, top 100 editor's pick. Uh, it's a world divided, a queendom without an heir, an ancient enemy awakens. I should have my music here. Dum da dum da dum. You know, <laughs> but uh, sounds like something fun. All right, so uh, we're going to jump now to uh, uh, Mark West at Story Charlotte blog and hear what he's recommending this week. Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a new collection of Zitz comic strips called Binge Worthy Zitz which just came out in October. I'm a regular reader of the comic strip Zitz, which made its debut 25 years ago this past summer. It's one of the regular features in the Charlotte Observer. Zitz is written by Jerry Scott and illustrated by Jim Borgman, and it focuses on the experiences of Jeremy Duncan a 17-year-old high school student. One of the aspects of this comic strip that intrigues me is how Jeremy relives his junior year in high school over and over again. Every August, Jeremy finishes his quirky summer job and then finds himself right back at the beginning of his junior year. Part of me wants to tell Jeremy to drop all of his AP courses since he's never going to make it to college. However, another part of me wants to tell him to make the most of this latest version of his junior year. For with each new school year comes a new set of stories. If you like Zitz, I highly recommend Binge-Worthy Zitz. Thank you. Yeah, I love how we get uh, everything from the children's comic strips to the uh, fantasy novel with all the in-between literary fiction and, and good stuff to go with it. So well, let's see what Alyssa uh, Pressler has for us from That's Novel Books this week. Hi, everyone. My name is Alyssa with That's Novel Books, a used bookstore located in Camp North End. And I'm excited to give you one of my all-time favorite books uh, as a recommendation this week. It's on my mind because a friend of mine just picked it up and asked me what I thought. And of course, I gushed about it. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And it is essentially a love story to trees, a love letter to trees. Um, It's told from different perspectives, but it's all people learning to really um, appreciate and respect trees. I know it sounds kind of hokey, but it's truly a beautifully written book fabulously done. Um, It's a book that comes to me still two years after reading it in um, random times throughout the week where I just think of a passage from it or I think of an element of the story. So it's one that I continually return to. Highly recommend The Overstory by Richard Powers. All right, that's great. And I'll remind the listeners that, uh, you know, you can come by way of SpeakPipe or our email on our contact page at charlerspodcast.com. Make your own book recommendations. Tell us what you loved about 
a recent read. And uh, if you're an author, that's a place where you can also uh, do your elevator pitch, something we're having fun with. Um, I don't think we have one this week, but uh, I know there are lots of authors out there that have got books that are saying to themselves, you know, I wish I could figure out a way uh, to let people know about my book. Well, this is a free way you can let people know about your book. You just have to practice your 30-second elevator pitch, which is Sarah and I have talked about. It's probably harder than writing that little piece on the back of the book, which is harder than writing the book itself, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to do, but it's worth doing for sure because you never know when you're going to meet someone and have a chance to talk to them about your book. So you might as well kind of hone that in your mind ahead of time and know what you want to say. Yeah, so Dave, remind uh, pe- people at Charlotte Writers Club, you know, this is free free stuff, free publicity, you know, when they have their books out, uh, you know, they, uh, they can do that. And Dave, aren't you working on a, I think I remember... You did this great nonfiction book, uh, which we had on the podcast before, but I think I remember you telling me you were working on a novel. Right? I am working on a novel, uh, a novel, curiously enough, set in Paris, uh, okay. which involves a, a writer and a jazz musician, my two passions. Um, several years in the making now and uh, almost done, but a little too long. It's going to take some some toning down. All right. Well, you or can also quite- practice start, start practicing your 30-second elevator pitch so that when it comes out, you can be first on Charlotte Rear's podcast with that. Uh, well, let's shift to uh, community uh, uh, engagement here for a moment. Uh, Dave, we did have a, uh, you know, an audio piece from you about what's coming in December. So I thought I'd play that and then you, and then you critique uh, yourself and add to it. How about that? Dave Collins here, president of the Charlotte Writers Club. Most months I record a message for the Charlotte Readers podcast telling you about the speaker at our next meeting. December is a little different. The Charlotte Writers Club exists to serve the needs of writers in Charlotte and the surrounding cities. Our off-stated goal is to encourage, recognize, and reward good writing. How? Our monthly meetings center around craft talks by accomplished writers. We hold an open mic night each month where members are invited to read their work to an appreciative audience. We offer workshops to help writers hone their skills. We sponsor four contests a year for adults, flash fiction, nonfiction, short story, and poetry, and a contest for students as well. Our twice-monthly newsletter is full of information about workshops, contests, and events of interest to writers. And we offer critique groups, small sessions where four or five or six of our members get together, usually monthly, to look at each other's writing and offer constructive criticism. Different groups focus on different genres, poetry, nonfiction, screenplays, historical fiction, short stories, mysteries, the literary novel. Some are open to whatever comes along. Geographically, our critique groups are spread all over the city and beyond. Each year, we devote the December meeting to organizing new critique groups, and we invite you to come to find a congenial group of writers willing to help you take your writing to the next level. Our December meeting is set for Tuesday, the 13th, at the Tyvola Senior Center. The action begins at 6.30, and we hope to see you there. For more information, go to our website, charlottewritersclub.org. Yeah, Dave, so um, also this meeting is, uh, you may not know you want to be in a group. You may just want to come meet some other writers, correct? That's exactly it. Uh, You know, uh, writing seems to be in many ways a solitary a uh, solitary business, but publishing is social. 
you know, uh, in order yeah. to in order to test your novel against other readers, I think you you really need a, a group of people that you trust, uh, who will you you know who who you know won't destroy you, but will will offer those uh, helpful comments that'll help help you to direct the novel where it needs needs to go. You know, and that really that is again our December meeting, uh, and we hope you yeah. join us there. Um, yeah, I think you know, Sarah collects uh, collects critique groups like uh, like stamps, right, Sarah? You, I you, do, <laughs> <laughs> or the way that Dave collects books. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm you, actually I'm in a number of critique groups, and two of them are um, through the Charlotte Writers Club. One is about screenwriting, and one is open to any media or genre, um, and they're very helpful. So it's a great way to get feedback on your writing and improve your work, and also just meet other writers and network and get some kind of support as you go through the sometimes solitary writing process. So yeah, it's something that I would recommend for any writer. Yeah. And while we got you here, Dave, uh, as a captive audience, uh, let's talk about Charlotte Writers Club a minute. I feel like, um, you know, the pandemic uh, uh, really kind of put a dent in things a little bit because we, you know, you had to shift to online and some people weren't as comfortable with that. And uh, now that, uh, you know, we're trying to get back into events, um I think maybe we're talking about resolutions, aspirations. If you were once in the Charlotte Writers Club and you hadn't been in a while, maybe you decide that, you know, come either December or come in 2023, you're going to start coming back because there's plenty of room and space at that uh, uh, junior center that we uh, meet at, right? The uh, Tavola Junior Senior Center. Yeah. We, we, we rented two rooms <laughs> to make sure we had ample space. Yeah, and so there's plenty of room, plenty of room to spread out. Uh, the ceilings are high. There's good ventilation, I understand. So, you know, um, come on out and, and take advantage of that. I feel like, uh, you know, when I when I wrote my first book seven years ago and I still practicing law, I was trying to look find a community of writers and I found the Charlotte Writers Club and met lots of people I'm still friends with today and that led me to Charlotte Center for Literary Arts. And so there are, uh, there are plenty of uh, counties in North Carolina that are jealous of what Charlotte has with the Charlotte Writers Club having been in existence for how many years, Dave? Well, we are celebrating our 100th anniversary this year. So we're starting the uh, the second 100 years, which how many writers clubs can claim that? Yeah, <laughs> I know? guess there is a reason to meet at the Senior Center if we've been doing it 100 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we have a dynamite writer coming in in January. Uh, Yasmin Ango, who lives in Columbia, South Carolina, is driving up to talk about talk to us. She's a, a Ghanaian, uh, a first-generation immigrant, actually, from Ghana, uh, who has uh, now done two novels about a, uh, a black detective, uh, let's, let's say with an attitude. Uh, and, you know, she, she's going to talk to us in January. I'm very much looking forward to that one. I think she's going to be uh, an absolutely mesmerizing speaker. Yeah, I've heard her speak before. She's great. Yeah, so listeners, put uh, put that on your list uh, of things uh, to do. It's a uh, it's a uh, engaging community. Of course, the writing community is uh, supportive in and of itself. But uh, Charlotte Writers Club has always been that way, and they're working on a new. I'm throwing you softballs, Dave. What are you working on? <laughs> a new what for the Writers Club? Well, uh, we've been we got a grant last year, which among other things has enabled us to uh, bring in a group of professionals to redo our webpage. Um, it will. I, I expect it, we will get the uh, web page launched within the next month, and uh, it is it is clear. It, it is concise. It is easy to navigate. Um, 
you know, I've seen the first version of the prototype. We're working on the second version of it now. Uh, it's, it's going to be a, a real boost, uh, I think, in terms of communicating with the public. That's great. All right. Well, keep up the good work there. Uh, sir, do we have any uh, listener feedback on, on uh, social media this time? If, if not, we um, can certainly solicit it, right? Yeah, I don't think we have any right now, but certainly any time that you want to drop us a line on social media or through the contact form on our webpage, or you can also, through that contact form, you can find a link to our SpeakPipe page where you can leave us an audio message. Um, you can do your 30-second elevator pitch like we talked about for your book. You can leave us feedback, uh, book recommendations, writing tips, reach out to us. We, we love to hear it. And we also right now are soliciting um, your writerly new year's resolutions and aspirations i know we yeah. talked on our last episode with paul Rialli's tip about um maybe how to think about making those resolutions and how to think about setting your goals and how to um sort of plan ahead for them and take action steps to actually make sure that they are they're going to be achievable for you so that's a good thing to keep in mind um but yeah if you have any goals for your reading or writing next year that you want to share with us we're going to be talking about that in our last episode of the year for the holidays so feel free to drop us a line yeah, good stuff. Uh, all right, well, uh, right after this, we're going to jump into the craft portion of our episode, starting with Charlotte Litt's two-minute tip and a community blog feature we've got. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right. Well, we're going to start out uh, with Charlotte Litt's two-minute tip, Paul Reale. Uh, visualizing and keeping your writing goals. I've really enjoyed uh, getting these tips uh, from Paul. They sort of launch a discussion among the host. Uh, we add to it. Uh, we sometimes argue with it like we did last uh, week on uh, New Year's resolutions and aspirations, although we really didn't argue. We sort of just kind of broke it down a little bit and uh, presented both sides of the equation. So let's see what Paul does with his follow-up titled Visualizing and Keeping uh, Your Writing Goals. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. In a previous tip, I encouraged you not to make New Year's resolutions for your writing, but instead to do this. Right now, establish well-defined writing goals and describe the lifestyle changes required to help you reach those goals. Today's tip follows that one with a way to help you visualize and keep those goals, a vision board. The concept of a vision board is simple. Cut and paste found images and words that represent your goals and dreams and arrange them artfully on a poster board. The result is a powerful visual depiction that can serve as a touchstone to help you focus on your goals, improve your productivity, and even guide your decision making. Writers can use vision boards to depict their goals and dreams, completed books, manuscript pages, bookstore shelves, you can display images that put you in a writing mood, an ideal writing space, images from nature, depictions of the muses. If you have a mantra like, but in chair, or just one page, or why not me, 
you can put it on the board. There are no rules, no restrictions. You are creating your own unique vision, and the only audience for the board is yourself. Once it's done, display it someplace where you can see it and be inspired by it, such as on the wall in the room where you do your most writing. If you find it works for you, you can create project-specific boards. I have a board with scenes from Buffalo, New York, where my mystery novels are set, and depictions of characters that resemble those in my story, and images that represent key story moments. On a final note, you can create a vision board to illustrate very clear goals or to discover your vision, allowing the found images to speak to you. Now, here's your action step. Make a vision board. Magazine, scissors, glue stick, poster board. That's what you need. Then take your time. Turn through the magazines, cutting out images and words that seem meaningful. When you have more than you need, lay them out on the board, move them around, glue them down when it feels right. When done, hang it prominently. Repeat at least annually. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. Uh, as always, there's a lot to unpack there. Have either of you ever created a vision board? No, I have not. Have you? I can't say as I have. Uh, I, I have used note cards uh, spread across the board a la Save the Cat, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But I've never created a, one with visions. Although, in fact, you know, um, I, I do think of individual real people uh, when I try to visualize the people in my novel. Um, although I've never actually cut out magazine pictures and posted them on a board. Yeah, well, actually, I, I, I took a course at Charlotte Lit about, I know it was at least six years ago because uh, uh, it was a vision board course. And on my vision board, I think I had the number 60 on there, which I was hoping to make it to uh, at the time. <laughs> and uh, I don't know where that vision board is. I don't have enough room in my study to get it you know, get it up there. But it's, it was an interesting uh, exercise. I, I sort of felt like I was... Uh, back in uh, primary school, you know, uh, doing cutouts and uh, making collages and things, which was kind of a fun uh, tactile exercise to do to kind of put that in place. Um, I do something similar with Scrivener uh, when I write uh, my novels or longer pieces because it allows you to actually uh, link to images on the World Wide Web. So you can put that down the left side as part of your research. And I think I, you know, a couple of characters from my last book, I had some actors in mind as who I'd like they to look like. And I just you know, put a picture of them down the left side in my research. And sometimes you can do that with places and articles and that kind of thing. So in that respect, I think it's good. You know, it, the vision board there is really, I think more about trying to get some content that you can see and remind yourself of. I've heard some authors who we've interviewed on the show talk about creating a Bible for their novel series so that they don't forget, um, you know, what their characters' predilections are, what they look like, what they did as a kid, those kind of things. So, uh, But Paul's also talking about this idea of goals. Um, so let's talk about that just a minute, making goals uh, as a writer, putting that up uh, for yourself to visualize in some fashion. Is that something that you think might help? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's definitely helpful to have goals, but a lot of what we've been talking about with this two-minute tip and the one from last time is about how do you actually make those 
concrete and how do you mm-hmm. kind of encourage yourself to actually do them instead of just thinking in big terms right. like I want to write more or I want to write this project <laughs> how do you actually make yourself get into that headspace and actually get the work done right. um, and I think that idea of of making a, a literal physical uh, vision board is good because you know the work that we do as writers is so sort of ephemeral and it's just in your mind and it can be helpful to actually cut things out and glue them down and, and have that kind of different way of processing what you're thinking about. Um, but even if you don't want to do that, I mean, you can make an online vision board through Pinterest or Instagram or using Canva or something like that. Um, and that's even a way that you can potentially engage with your readers too. Sometimes I see authors do that where they'll, they'll put together kind of like a lookbook for a work in progress mm-hmm. or something that they have finished, but that they're trying to promote. Um, and that can be a good way of promoting your writing and getting your readers engaged and excited about the story as you're showing them these images of like, here's kind of prototypes for the characters and the settings. Um, you can also do sort of an auditory version of that and make a playlist, whether it's something that you're playing for yourself just to kind of motivate yourself to write in general, or for a specific project, you can put together songs that put you in the right headspace and mood for writing that project. And again, that can be something that you just do for yourself or that you share with your readers too, um, to help promote your work. So I think that it's fun to kind of engage with your writing in these different ways and different types of media. And I think it sort of unlocks a different part of your brain somehow and mm-hmm. activates those, those other thinking skills. So it's a good way to get yourself excited about achieving those goals. Yeah. And Dave, we need, you know, uh, there's a perpetu- perpetual, you what? can start pulling together some battle that goes on between uh, pantsers and, and plotters, you know, and I, I happen to be a plotter. And in a certain sense, you know, although my outline changes about every two months uh, as, as I write parts of the book and discover that it's really not going to go in that direction, it's going to go in the other direction. Uh, I, I keep th- th- those constitute kind of goals for me. Uh, but, you know, what really caught my attention and what Paul said was uh, talking, he, he talked about, you know, goals, but he, then he talked about lifestyle changes. Uh, uh, that you would have to make in order to achieve those goals. I hear so many people, you know, around the uh, Charlotte Writers Club say, I'd I'd like to write more, but I can't find the time. And admittedly, I have the the luxury of being retired, although I think I'm I'm discovering that being president is itself a full-time job. And I have to carve out time for writing, setting it aside, you know, deciding that I'm not going to do X because I want to write uh, and that, that kind of thing there. Uh, I, I think that part of Paul's advice uh, is, is, is really worth listening to. Yeah. And I was going to say, I, we, we, I think we've given you some ideas. You can start collecting these photographs of Paris and uh, maybe put a little soundtrack together with some Parisian background music so that when you're ready to start marketing your book, you'll just have it all right there. I can't tell you how many CDs I have uh, recorded in Paris. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, this is a good tip. Uh, great stuff. Uh, listeners, I hope you uh, gain something from this and come up with your own uh, ideas or offshoots from uh, these suggestions and use them to trigger your own interest, your own creativity. Um, and speaking of uh, creativity, we've got a community blog feature now with uh, author Jonathan Lerner. Uh, the title of his post is Writing Believably About Places You've Never Been. Uh, Sarah, you want to tell us about Jonathan? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be curious to hear Dave's thoughts on this one since you're writing about Paris, which is a place that I think you have been a lot, but that idea of writing about place, there's so much to talk about here. Um, but Jonathan is author of the novels Alex Underground and Caught in a Still Place. Um, he also wrote a memoir called Swords in the Hands of Children, and he has a new novel called Lily Narcissus, which is out now from Unsolicited Press. Um, he's been a magazine editor and a feature writer. He's a longtime contributing editor at Landscape Architecture Magazine, where his work addresses the connections between built and natural environments. And he lives in New York's Hudson Valley with his husband, Peter Frank, who is a community activist. Yeah, and he uh, he emailed me because we were back and forth about uh, this particular post and uh, the idea of writing about a place you've never been believably. And uh, uh, in his novel, Lily Narcissus, uh, it takes place uh, largely in uh, Taipei where he lived as a kid, so he does have a lot of reference there. But he also had scenes from Honolulu, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Bangkok, a place he'd passed through only a few days as a child, um, uh, and in Saigon, uh, and a bunch of other places uh, whose names I can't pronounce, but none of which he'd ever been to to visit. Um, and he got some really good reviews for, uh, you know, the, the the sense of place that he was able to uh, inject into the story. Uh, and so it would be interesting to hear what he has to say about uh, how to do that. So let's get to it. I'm Jonathan Lerner. Writing believably about places you've never seen. I used to write a lot of travel articles back before the 2008 crash when magazines had big budgets to send writers around. I always took in a destination's obvious sites, museums and markets, beaches and beauty spots, hot restaurants. I also rambled, rode buses and trains, idled on park benches and in cafes. This looked aimless, but I was absorbing atmospheric details like a sponge and noting down every visual image and sensory impression. They made my stories rich, which is why readers love them. Here's the dirty little secret of travel writing. I was shocked when I got my first assignment to write a travel story without taking the trip. Of course, I accepted the job. As a freelancer, I didn't have much choice. You might assume that a travel writer has actually, well, traveled somewhere. But caveat lector, it's not always true. Getting started that first time, I felt a bit smarmy but I quickly figured out how to write with integrity about places I hadn't seen. If you're writing nonfiction, just don't make it up. One simple trick, do not write in the first person. You weren't there, so how could you? Some things you won't be able to describe experientially, like the particular savor of the crawfish bisque, but you could still make the point saying, the region is known for its crawfish bisque, which Julia Child once called heaven in a bowl, but only if Julia really did. This rule holds across categories of journalism, but fiction is all about making things up. Thus, we have the fantastic worlds of speculative future and gothic past. But you may want your novel or short story to be not only plausible in its plot and characters, but also recognizable and resonant in its setting and textures. The following suggestions are as useful for writing fiction as for nonfiction. Translate sensory detail from your previous experiences. Perhaps you've taken the short car ferry from Ocracoke to Hatteras and the overnight ferry from Maine to Nova Scotia. Now you're writing a story set in the Greek islands without having been there. You probably can't say anything specific about the ships of Hellenic seaways or Minoan lines, but you can surely recall the bustle and clang of loading and offloading cars in port, or the delicious feel of coming on deck at dawn to watch a coastline emerge from the mist. 
Borrow other people's experiences. I'm not suggesting plagiarism or over-reliance on quoting from Julia or anybody else, but you can get a picture through others' eyes and then craft your own description. Reading about a place is one way. Better, interview people who know it. I once had to write without visiting about a rustic resort where people stay when hiking the Great Ocean Walk on Australia's south coast. The resort's photos helped, but I didn't want to mimic the language of its brochures, so I asked for the names of several past guests. Over the phone, those folks were happy to fill me in on, for example, just how secluded the place's private echo cabins were from one another, and what was liable to be in the lunch packs walkers were handed every morning. Research like crazy. Reading and interviewing are two ways to find out about a place. Nowadays, the internet offers many more. Suppose you need your depressed character who coaches youth soccer to experience something marvelous and uplifting. Scan blogs by soccer parents. It might take a while, but you'll find anecdotes you can work with, like the day practice fell apart when a helicopter landed in the adjacent field, delighting the kids. Perhaps in your story that becomes a hot air balloon and sets your sad character to dreaming. There are online resources for any angle of inquiry. When did commercial jetliners start flying? And what did Atlanta's airport terminal look like that year? And what did meals in first class consist of? Find answers in narrative documents, archival images, and the recollections of flight attendants and travelers. Street view is especially valuable to get a visual feel for a place you haven't seen recently or ever. What do the houses look like? Are there front lawns, wide or narrow sidewalks, or none at all? You're not looking for exhaustive information, just telling details, the little gems. After all, those are what let readers visualize and travel into your story. All right, good stuff. And before we uh, talk about this, I'll just remind listeners that... uh, you can always go to the website, uh, Community Voices page, and uh, click on the community blog, and you can uh, see the written uh, blog post here uh, by Jonathan Lerner and many others. And if you want to break down on the first uh, 38 of these, you can go to uh, my website, uh, landisway.com. I've got a blog post uh, summarizing those. We also broke those down on previous episodes. So part of what we're doing here is trying to bring uh, more about the craft, but also featuring the authors uh, through that process. So in addition to talking to authors about their books, we're talking to authors about the craft of writing. And uh, I found a lot in here uh, of, of help. Uh, let's start. Uh, Dave, we'll let you go first this time. Well, you know, when Sarah sat down to inter- uh, interview Therese Fowler for the Charlotte Writers Club a few weeks ago, one of the things that came out that night was that when Therese wrote Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, she had never been to Paris. Uh, and yet when I read Z, I wouldn't have suspected that for a moment. I I was utterly convinced by the way she portrayed, well, Paris in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, So, you know, she has uh, followed Jonathan's advice to a T here, I I, I suspect. Uh, She and I talked briefly uh, after the program about the research that she did, which was exhaustive, uh, so much that she had forgotten (laughs) some of the names of some of the books that she she actually read to do that. but, you know, in, in response to a question from a member of the audience, Therese said, but I had never been to Paris, but who knows how things would have changed if I had been um, and what, what details I might have added that might have just, you know, uh, improved the book just a little bit here and there. You know, my, my feeling about cities, and as Sarah suggested, I've been to Paris a lot, somewhere on the order of 
25 times. It's what happens when you're married to a professor of French. Um, I don't think cities are, in, in some sense, real places. When we go there the first time, you know, we have an image in our head of what that city is going to be like. We've heard about it. We've heard about it. Uh, we, we've maybe tasted some of the foods that are associated with it. You know, we, we've gathered a whole lot of uh, impressions, which may or may not be true. Uh, but they, they, you know, they, they nonetheless, in a certain sense, guide us or they shape the way we, we come to see that city. And I, I think my Paris is different from, you know, the Paris that other people have visited uh, because, you know, maybe like Langston Hughes, who talks about, uh, you know, reading de Maupassant stories and talks about watching the, the, the snow fall uh, in Paris uh, uh, through de Maupassant's eyes. It, it shaped Langston Hughes's perception of the city. Uh, various things in my youth, I'm sure, shaped mine. And, you know, uh, I went there and the city lived up to that for me. That's great. Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think Dave made some great points that when you're writing about setting, especially in fiction as opposed to nonfiction, it's not just describing the place, but describing it through the lens of your characters and through their experiences. So you want to imbue it with that specific perspective. Um, but overall, I think this is an example of one thing that is really wonderful about being a writer in the modern world is that we have access to so much that we can research. You know, there's really no excuse to limit yourself in terms of where you set your writing or what you want to write about, because pretty much any place on earth, you can find information about it so easily through the internet. Um, and of course, that's no substitute for actually being there. But you can really get a, a good start. And um, for, for most of what you want to write, you can probably find enough information that you need. Um, certainly, as Jonathan mentioned, the post images are really helpful. Like if I'm writing about a place that I haven't been to, and I'm researching it, that's going to be one of the first things I look for is just images through Google image search, or like he talked about going on Google Maps, looking at Street View. Um, a picture is worth a thousand words, as they say, so they can really tell you a lot about the place. But also just going a little bit beyond Google. And like he talked about, um, I think, you know, finding people you can talk to that the internet is a great starting place for that and finding other points to expand your research. So I think that that's, that's a great way to open up your kind of horizons as a writer and write about experiences you haven't had, um, which is a topic that's kind of resonant in bigger, uh, bigger ways than just setting as well. More, more broadly, the idea of how much do you limit yourself to writing about what you know versus what you don't, which is obviously a very big and, and complicated topic. Um, but I think my overall take on it is that you shouldn't be limited to just writing what you know, but the further you go outside of your own experience, the more difficult it might be and the more responsibility you have to do that research and to make sure that you're really you know, trying to know as much as you can about the places that you're writing about, the people that you're writing about experiences that you haven't lived yourself um, and really call on your powers of imagination and empathy and try to put yourself in other people's shoes, which is, I think, one of the best parts about writing fiction. Yeah, and I think this is a great tie-in to uh, Paul Reale's suggestion for a vision board because what better way to uh, think about the place than have a vision of it? Maybe throw some pictures up there, uh, some notes of your own uh, travels there. I think the idea of uh, interviewing people um, is good. I mean, I I write, uh, and I'm going to be writing this series in the retirement community, so I'm constantly asking people, you know, to tell me stories about uh, living, living in the retirement. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't find out about uh, the recent conflict at the croquet match, you know, where somebody <laughs> was trying to tell somebody else uh, 
what to do, who was on the other team, you know, and just annoying as hell. And they wanted to take them out and they about got in a fight, you know. So these kind of things happen. You don't learn about that unless you uh, ask questions. But the idea of absorbing uh, through uh, your existing experience, but also I think I loved his ana- analysis of getting on the ferry at Ocracoke because I've been on a ferry, you know, from Ocracoke going over. And, you know, I remember pulling away from the shore and, the seagulls flying around and the smell of the salt air and the waves, uh, you know, if the wind is blowing against you, lapping up against the front, maybe the spray hitting you in the face. Well, these are the kind of things that you can take and uh, maybe your subconscious sometimes takes it for you and then helps translate that to the page. You just have to then fact check yourself to make sure that's going to actually happen, you know, in another place, in another ferry, in another world. So uh, all good suggestions uh, uh, and uh Really uh, want to thank uh, Jonathan for sharing sharing those and for participating in the community blog. And Sarah, we're always inviting people to do this, right? Yeah, you can send us an article. And we've really been enjoying getting such a variety of, of topics um, from our contributors. And we like to feature those, as you've seen here on the, the show, as well as putting them on our website. We promote them in our newsletter, on social media. So it's a great way, just like the elevator pitch, if you have something that you want to promote um, or just kind of get your name out there on the show. And thanks to everyone who's been participating. It's been a lot of fun to hear these kind of diverse perspectives. Yeah, and I would say you do not have to feel like you are an author of five books or you've got all kinds of awards or whatever to bring your experience and knowledge to the community blog. This could be your experience and knowledge with any number of things related to your writing journey. It could be helpful to other people that are on their writing journey. And so if you remember the Sharp Writers Club and you're listening because Dave's here and we hope you are, I think that was your homework assignment. Uh, You know, let's... uh, Let's uh, take advantage of this, you know, write, write, uh, write an article. Uh, and by the way, we don't take exclusive control over this. Uh, it could be a, a blog post you posted on your own website and you just want to get some uh, broader reach to it. Uh, we can put it up here and, you know, we'll put it on the website. We'll put it in our newsletter. We'll talk about it on the podcast. So, yeah, join us with that. And um, I think now we're going to be moving to uh, Act uh, 4, our last act of the day, and got a great novel coming up. Uh, but before that... Uh, We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. So um, this uh, this next feature, um, Gary Edgington is a member of the Charlotte Writers Club. He has uh, written his debut novel, Outside the Wire. Uh, Sarah, tell us about uh, Gary. Yeah, so Gary brings a lot of great real-life experience to his writing. He's a 40-year law enforcement veteran and the son of a law enforcement officer who was murdered in the line of duty in 1979. Um, Gary has held assignments in patrol, narcotics, internal affairs, intelligence and organized crime, government corruption, and as a firearms and tactics instructor. He has been honored by the California Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the FBI for his counterterrorism and government corruption investigations. Um, He's also a member of the Charlotte Writers Club. I've met him at a meeting there, which is great. He's in Charlotte lit. He's in the Association of Former Intelligence Officers and the Charlotte chapter of the NYPD 1013 Club. Yeah, I met Gary recently as well at Charlotte Writers Club, and and uh, he's doing the things that writers need to do. Have, be in all these organizations, meet people, do these different things. Uh, his 
His book, Outside the Wire, it portrays the story of Rick Sutherland, a retired LAPD detective lieutenant serving in Iraq in 2008 as an embedded civilian counterterrorism advisor and Major Nancy Weaver, an Army doctor. Um, and it's uh, it's got a lot of realism in it because, uh, you know, uh, Gary has seen that firsthand and he's, he's brought his experiences to the fray. And I asked him about some of that. But uh, anyway, this one of the praise he got was from a, uh, MD, Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force, saying it's been 19 years since I manned the AF field hospital at the Victory Base Complex and took incoming at Camp Sother before the end of the first chapter outside the wire had me back in the fight. Awesome read and deadly accurate. So good praise there by somebody who's been in it. So um, when I called up with Gary to ask him about the book, the first thing I asked him to do was to talk about his life experiences that led him to want to write this novel and what he had to do to uh, write certain characters. And this is what he had to say. My father retired as a senior chief petty officer in the Coast Guard, and that sparked my interest in military affairs and history. When he retired and went into law enforcement, I followed suit. Like my protagonist, Rick Sutherland, a retired LAPD lieutenant, I've never been in the military. Also, just like Rick, I deployed to Iraq as an embedded advisor working to counter the IED threat. I was an investigator for most of my 30-year career from 1999 to 2012. I worked in the counterterrorism arena. I've conducted hundreds of investigations ranging from major narcotics to terrorism and become quite skilled at the recruitment and management of informants. All this plus my boots on the ground experience living and working in Iraq provided me with the building blocks for outside the wire. Rick was a duck out of water working with the army in Iraq. He had to learn a new language, customs, protocols, and simple survival skills to make it through his deployment. So did I. I drew upon that experience as I built the character of Rick. This clash of civilian and military cultures provided Rick with an ample opportunity to make a few wisecracks. This humor also added a dimension to the book. As for Major Nancy Weaver, MD, since I had no direct medical knowledge, I had to rely upon asking former military physicians and my son-in-law, Eric, who works in the medical field. Since I was crafting a female character, I listened intently to advice from my wife as well as my daughter. While I was deployed, I was struck by the courage, strength, intelligence, and toughness of our men and women in uniform. I wanted my female characters to be realistic and exemplify those traits in every way. All right, that's good advice if you're writing uh, female characters. Talk to the women in your life to make sure that uh, listen you to your wife. I like this advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife, my daughter, <laughs> people I know, like Sarah and whoever mm. you know. <laughs> uh, make sure you don't uh, mess it up. But but it's interesting. He he brought this uh, his real life experience to bear on 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 this book. We've talked about the you know writing what you know, but uh, you know it, it's it's and we talked about the fact it's, it's not always just what you know, but it's what you learn which ends up being what you know through research or whatever. But Gary had this real-life experience that, that put him on the ground, and uh, he was able to invest that uh, into the story. And I asked him to tell us some of the real kind of real-life events that he experienced personally that found their way into the book. There are many scenes in the book that are drawn from my life experiences, both in law enforcement as an advisor in Iraq. Contracting Saddam's revenge while deployed was not fun nor was riding with a sadistic Black Hawk pilot who was trying to get me to puke. The chow hall scenes were real, as was the Iraqi soldier who pointed a loaded heavy machine gun at me. But the most chilling scene was the one where Rick accidentally drove off the base at night. That actually happened to me 
and was pretty scary. I was alone in an unarmored Ford pickup. I had no body armor, and while I had a 9mm pistol, it was, as per regulation, unloaded. Rick's recalling the killing of his father in line of duty in Chapter 6 was drawn upon my own experience when my father was murdered in line of duty while I was in the third week of academy training. Rick's interrogation and source recruitment techniques are all based on my own experience, as are his weapons, handling, and knowledge, as well as his tactical and shooting skills. The incomprehensible acronyms in military bureaucracy, the strange rules, the living conditions, the medical clinics, the food, the heat, the dust, and the smells are all part of my experience in Iraq. My description of JSS Yusufia and its medical officers also drawn on my experience there. That's what I love about uh, books like this. Um, it, it would not have occurred to me that it was regulation that when you go off the base, <laughs> your weapon has to be unloaded. I mean, wouldn't that be the time that it should be loaded? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> good point. Uh, well, before we have a reading, any thoughts on what you've heard so far, Dave? Uh, thoughts on what I've heard and thoughts on what I've read. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting, I haven't finished the book yet, I'm about halfway through, uh, was the relationship between the narrator and the reader uh, in, in Gary's book. You know, he speaks directly to the reader. Uh, and he, I think he mentioned something about wisecracking remarks. That's a good deal of that. Uh, a very different relationship uh, between narrator and reader than you find in, in most of the books I've read recently. That's good. Something different. It's always good to have something different. Uh, well, let's uh, let's hear uh, a reading from the book, uh, and then we'll have uh, Gary tell us about some of the lessons he learned. Uh, I think this comes from very early uh, in in the book itself. This scene takes place at JSS Yusufia, which is a joint U.S.-Iraqi Army facility. The base had just come under mortar attack, and the medical building had been hit. Rick Sutherland, retired LAPD lieutenant working as an embedded civilian advisor with the Army, is racing to rescue his friend and lover, Major Nancy Weaver, M.D., who has just performed emergency surgery on the son of a local who is connected to the Shia insurgency. I felt my way down the small hallway, aided by the tiny red light. After a few feet, I reached a T-intersection. I could just make out two doors to my right and one on my left. The hallway was a mess. Storage lockers and cabinets that lined either side of the door were all down and smashed. I picked my way across the tops of the cabinets, trying not to slice my hands on the glass shards blanketing the place. As I inched closer to the door on the left, I felt something snag my right pants leg and boot. After a few tugs, I freed myself only to hear a tear and feel a sting in my right calf. I ignored it and continued to the door. I forced it open with one push. It swung wide to reveal a room full of supplies. No little boy, no Nancy, shit. I heard screaming and pounding come from the other end of the hallway. I sped up, ignoring the glass shards, pushing past the debris. I reached the door and hear someone tearing at the wall on the other side. I tried to push open the door with my hand. It wouldn't budge. Next, I tried my shoulder. It gave away a few inches and then stopped. It was time for the old Starsky and Hutch door kick move. Usually, this doesn't work. But desperate times called for desperate measures. I backed away as far as I could from the door and kicked out with my right foot, aiming for the doorknob. It moved about six inches. I gave it another kick, and whatever was blocking it gave way. I pushed my way through just as a soldier was prying open a seam of the plywood wall. 
The room was full of dust and blinding smoke. I couldn't see more than a few feet in front of me. Doc's hit, I heard him yell. My heart sank as I frantically struggled through the debris. As I inched closer, I could just make out the poor little guy on the table. His eyes were wide open. Then I saw Nancy. She had covered the boy's head and upper body with her own to shield him from the blast. I moved to her side and shone my light on her face. She glanced up at me and smiled. The right side of her face was cut in a couple places and covered in dirt and grime. All right, pull, pulls you in quickly. Um, it sounds like a little bit of a thriller. Uh, and uh, so, Dave, don't tell us what happens now because I got, I still got, still got to read it myself. So, uh, yeah. Um, but you know, we always with these authors, we uh, whether we interview uh, live or we do a speak pipe uh, interview uh, like this, we uh, we ask them to share some of the lessons learned uh, from their writing process. And uh, here's what Gary had to say about that. The work really starts after you write the end. The editing, rewrites, proofing, and then peddling the book are, the hard, are all hard work. One of the hardest things I had to do was condense my 300-page book into a two-sentence pitch. I ultimately hired a published author to help me with that, and it was well worth it. Finding an agent and then a publisher was extremely difficult. My original agent in Los Angeles was very well known. However, he sadly passed away before going out with the book. It took me a year and a half to find a new agent. I did not use a detailed outline and instead turned my characters loose to let them do their thing. When you're writing a thriller with a complex plot, this is not a good idea. The sequel, which I have started, is being written using a more detailed outline. I did not keep a bio for each significant character. This required me to go do searches to make sure I kept all the details consistent. That was also a mistake. Do not fall in love with your words. I fell in love with my jokes and pontificating, and much of that got cut as it should have. As an author, you must be willing to cut your favorite pithy line or joke if it does not serve the story. All right. Uh, sounds like he was paying attention to a lot of advice people were giving him when he's writing that book because we've heard uh, those comments before. I do think, though, that uh, uh, his lead is sort of uh, everything else uh, falls from that because, as he said, the work starts after the end. Uh, thoughts on that? Dave? Well, you know, when I wrote my first book um, and submitted it to the, the press, I had remarkably little trouble um, with them. I think that, you know there were there were points in that book which was about uh, the struggle for same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court, uh, and focused on two men from Texas uh, who uh, were part of that struggle from the very beginning. Um, when when I when I when I when I first wrote that book. I had a lot of stuff in there about the law. I developed a particular dislike for Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, there were long passages in there uh, in which I uh, uh, talked about his opinions, uh, not in flattering terms, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, the director of the press ultimately said to me, you know, that this has to be toned down. Some of this had to come out. Uh, I had a when, 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 when I got to this chapter where I covered the wedding of these two men, I had a, a, 
you know, almost a detailed blow by blow account of the wedding in there. And again, they said to me, you know, this, this, uh, this has to be shortened a little bit. Um, you know, you, you do, you fall in love with things as you, as you, as you go along, you begin to see certain, certain parts as crucial to the book. And it takes that outside eye, uh, I think, to, to force you to step back and say, is mm-hmm. this isn't quite as important as you seem to think it was. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think I think they were right in, in this particular case. Uh, I, I also, you know, I was writing a book about two lo- living people. Uh, and, you know, I, I would submit the chapters to them as they were finished for accuracy checks to make sure I hadn't gotten details wrong. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times they would write back and, write back and say, you didn't put this in, you didn't put that in, you know. <laughs> And I would have to fight with them uh, about that uh, because, you know, they, they were things that I thought were extraneous to the narrative. Um, I certainly appreciate what, what Gary is saying about, uh, you know, um, condensation. And uh, I, I guess the phrase that I always use is killing your darlings. You know, there, there, there are just passages you fall in love with. They're probably good passages, but they may or may not belong in that particular book. Um, and I find myself... Uh, especially guilty here. I think I tend to be a kitchen sink writer. Uh, everything within grabbing distance goes in, and then at some point, a good bit of that has to come out. Um, that uh, that is well, two that, things. That takes first discipline. All, yeah, two things. First of all, your book is <clears throat> really a, a great read, and I commend it to uh, anyone. And there's an episode that you can go listen to uh, to Dave talk about uh, that book in more detail. Um, and uh, you know this. This idea, um, y- you know, of, uh, and I've totally lost my train of thought here, so we'll just have to jump to Sarah. <laughs> <It'll> <laughs> that happens you. sometimes. You know, this is the this is the senior edition of Charlotte Rear's podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> We're all allowed to have a senior moment every now and then. Um, yeah, but I, I really liked what Gary was saying about how he kind of learned some lessons along the way with his with his first book and now has implemented those as he's writing again. Um, and even in your interview with David Baldacci, I think you talked about some of that, how he's continuing to learn and still relies on critical feedback from his editor, even though he's been doing this for years and has published so many books with so much success. Um, it just goes to show that writing is really a lifelong process and a lifelong learning process. And no matter where you're at in that process, you can continue to learn and get better. So that's part of what I love about these discussions is we're always learning new new tips and new things to implement and try. Um, and yeah, I think what Gary was saying is a great testament to that. If I could jump back in just, just a second, uh, this is what Yasmin Angoa is going to talk about in January. You know, after finishing her first novel, she found that she was writing her second novel very differently. And her talk is going to be focused on how publishing my first novel changed the way I write. That's good. And I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I do remember now that it, uh, it was the blog post we talked about yesterday when we recorded, where uh, one of our bloggers said, uh, "Don't kill your darlings." You know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> the point was, if it's there and it's really meaningful to the story, you know, don't kill it. Even if somebody says to kill it, I think the trick is learning, you know, if it's really a darling to the story, or is it just something that uh, you felt like you wanted to drop in that doesn't advance the story right so mm-hmm. if it doesn't advance the story uh yeah kill it but if it's a darling that advances the story you know listen to yourself what's your story right yeah what i like to do there is i like to cut and save my darlings <laughs> like if there's something that i, I need to cut because i know you don't it's not kill working. them you don't mur- you don't murder yeah them, right? <laughs> I, I i cut it and i put it in another document to save it which you know 
95% of the time it just sits there and I never actually ended up using it, but it makes it easier to cut it if I feel like I'm not completely deleting it. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I can fit, find another way to put this in somewhere. Um, but, you know, if it's if it's really that great of an idea, it'll stick with you and you'll find a way to work it into something. Yeah, I mean, I cut that, I talked about this before, I cut that whole chapter where I killed off the entire independent retirement uh, community book club. I, maybe I'll save that for another story or something, you know, because it just wouldn't fit with everything that was going yeah. on in the existing novel. So, uh, all right, that's great stuff. Uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna jump to our takeaways and what's coming next uh, after this. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, Sarah always has good takeaways, and I'll, I'll let her go first. That way she does all the hard work, and I can just <laughs> echo what she has to say. So, okay. Sarah, give, give us some takeaways here. Well, I feel like we learned a lot of really great writing tips today from our contributing authors and from Dave. Um, and a lot of our discussion in particular was around sort of writing what you know versus research and writing outside of what you know, um, which I think is such an interesting topic with the blog post and with Gary Edgington's book, which was based on a lot of his life experience. Um, and I think it just inspires me to really look at that balance and to, you know, draw from experience where I can, but also to not be afraid to write outside of that and do the research and put in the work to try to write convincingly about other people and places and experiences. And it's been great to have Dave here with us today. Um, and thank you to Dave for being a full-time volunteer as the <laughs> president of the Charlotte Writers Club to you and Caroline and everyone who keeps the organization running. Um, I know you do a ton of work there, so we really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and Dave, Dave, your, your takeaways, including anything you want to say about Charlotte Rogers Club. Well, I think, I think you know, I, I, I come away from listening to the, the writing tips today in particular. Um, and, and maybe it begins with David uh, Baldacci. I think he writes faster than I read. Um, and it, it's, it's refreshing to know that there are people out there who do that, since I tend to be a slow writer as, as, as well as a slow reader. You know, uh, But I think... Uh, I remember a conversation I had with Liam Callanan, whose uh, most recent book uh, features a, a woman uh, in Paris who moves to Paris and starts a, starts a bookstore there. And I asked him uh, one night when we were talking uh, about how he dared to write the book in a certain sense from the perspective of a woman. And he said, you know, I started it and I, I rewrote the, the, the first few chapters several times. And the only time it really worked was when I put it in the voice of a woman. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I worry in my current novel uh, about uh, the, the female character who was a young writer. She and I share at least being a writer, if not young. Uh, and, and we have that in common. But, of course, I have never been a, a young woman in Paris uh, struggling with some of the things that she has to, has to struggle with as a result of her uh, boyfriend that she picks up in Paris. Um, I think, I think I've been given a little bit of courage by the writing tips today to get out there and try things, uh, and, uh, feel my way into other, into things that I might otherwise have been, been afraid of. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always inspired by, uh, you know, interviewing authors like David Baldacci. He, uh, He's one of the authors that I read along the way, um, uh, including John Grisham, who just pumps those uh, novels out, uh, and you, you wonder how can they possibly do it. Um, but you know, <clears throat> he's um, and and I kind of, you you 
listeners, uh, you know that I asked him a question about editing and his editor. Kind of a risky question to ask an author who's <laughs> as well published as he is because his book was pretty long. And I asked him, you know, that question about the editing process. And he said, you know, no, he's still with me. And if he wasn't hard on me, uh, he wouldn't still be my editor. So even someone as, uh, you know, as good a writer as putting out commercial fiction that people like to read, uh, when, when they say, you know, I still need someone looking over my shoulder to make sure that I'm refining this in the best product that it can be, it's, uh, it's good for the rest of us to know that that editing thing is just part of the process. Don't take it personally. In fact, you want people to come in and challenge you. Uh, I think, Sarah, that's why you remember so many critique groups, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I truly don't know where I would be if I were just writing in a vacuum and putting stuff out there. I think you have to have that outside perspective. It's totally invaluable. All right. Well, Sarah, what's uh, coming next on the podcast? So next time we're going to have a fun feature with two local children's authors, Cheryl Smiley Oliphant and Christopher Singleton. They're going to talk about writing for children and getting kids engaged with reading. Um, we're also going to feature Cully Holderfield's novel Hemlock Hollow, which is a family drama centering around a century-old murder. And of course, we'll have book recommendations and writing tips and community updates. Yeah, and uh, Dave, we want to thank you uh, again for the good work you've done for the Charlotte Writers Club and also... Uh, for riding along with us today. How was it uh, being a podcaster for a day? Well, you know, I, I could get used to this. It's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, well, I, thanks, uh, thanks for being here. I enjoy the engagement. Okay. All right, listeners, uh, if you're a, a writer, keep writing and reading. And if you're a reader, keep reading and try some writing. See you next time. <laughs>